Support for WRFA is brought to you in part by listeners like you, who believe in the vital public service WRFA provides through its arts and education programming, as well as through our coverage of local news and public affairs. Plus, your generous support lets us provide a number of volunteer-based programs to be shared on our airwaves. Help keep community radio in Jamestown and Chautauqua County alive by making a contribution today. To make a tax-deductible donation or learn more about becoming a station underwriter, use the donate page on our website, wrfalp.com, or send a check to WRFA Radio, 116 East 3rd Street, Jamestown, New York. Or you can call 716-664-2465. And again, you're listening to Community Matters. The Robert H. Jackson Center recently presented its State of the Center to Jackson Society supporters, which included plans for the future. We spoke with Center Executive Director Kristen McMahon about those plans. We have Robert H. Jackson Center Executive Director Kristen McMahon with us in the WRFA studios today. Welcome. Good morning, Julia. Or hello, Julia. So we recently presented the 2023 State of the Robert H. Jackson Center which acts like a review of the past year for the center. So what can you tell us that you learned about or what did happen in 2023? Yeah, so this is one of the my favorite things that I get to do because we have, I think each year that I've been here, and it's a little over four years now that I've been in this role, I feel like you can really see the progress that we're making. So this is always a fun report for me to make. But in you know 2022 into 2023, our board has really spent a good portion of the last 18 months in what we're call, calling capacity planning mode. And we were fortunate enough to uh, be a participant in the Western New York Foundation's ICAP program. And so that gave us access to a facilitator to really help us walk through where we were, where we wanted to be, and then identify the gaps between where we are and where we want to be. And so we spent most of 2022 developing those plans, really doing that work. And so the implementation started in really in January of 23. And so during the course of the last eight-ish months at this point, you know, we have uh, done some internal work. We are also working on our position. So one of the gaps that was identified is that we really need some additional staffing at the center. And for me, especially a director of programs and education is one of those key positions. And so we posted for that position in early July. We hope and in interviews will begin in a in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so the plan was we'll send out notices in the in the next 10 days or so to the people we'd like to interview and have those kick off hopefully just after Labor Day and hopefully have somebody on board before the end of the year. Because while I have a lot of fun with the programs and the education piece of this, I'm not an expert in this. And so we really need someone who can take those next steps, who really can identify these are the the resources that teachers and students need. These are the programs that we should be planning to educate at all at all levels. And so someone with that really heavy program and education background is is necessary. Mm-hmm. And are, that was one thing. Was there anything else that you found that in through looking at this with ICAP that uh, you maybe want to change or improve upon? So yeah, so we actually have five pillars. So we have a building pillar, a program pillar, an organization pillar, a technology pillar, 
and a development pillar. And so uh, typically I do that in alphabetical order, but <laughs> for whatever reason, I did not there. Um, and so it's take, so we're taking a look at our building and part of it is both ensuring that the, the structure of the building itself is robust and since it is the oldest brick home in Jamestown, making sure that we're doing everything we need to keep that up, but then also how we're using the building to tell Jackson's story. And although not uh, in the immediate plan, this is more in the, the one to two years out, we would like to work with an exhibit design and really go through the building and figure out the ways we can use the building itself in order to tell Jackson's story better. Um, I have a lot of ideas, but I don't want to bias a, <laughs> an exhibit designer on that. But I think that there's a really, I think the building itself lends itself to nice storytelling. Um, on the technology side, we want to create um, more personalized experiences for visitors when they come to the building. And so this is everything from younger students uh, to to people who are perhaps have a particular focus or interest when they come to visit us. So finding a way through technology to better incorporate our vast YouTube video library, um, being able to pull up individual speeches of Jackson's. Teachers perhaps could use the techn- different technology for their lesson plans and to instruct students. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to programming, everything that you're offering at the center, whether it's you know, bringing people in to speak or the exhibit itself, is, this is free to the public. It is, yes. Everything we are, as far as I know, I believe we're the only organization in town that doesn't charge an admission fee and we don't charge for any of our programs. And that absolutely is a critical thing for the center and certainly for my board. They are, they, that is a, that is a hill or a line they will not allow me to, to change. And I don't want to. It's, you know, during, during the pandemic, actually, that was really, a saving grace for us because that wasn't a line item that we needed to try and recuperate. And so our ability to continue to offer our programs and employ our staff had no hiccup. Mm-hmm. And I, every year you seem to have a, a theme you set, and I don't know if it's too early to ask you this question, if you have a theme for what 2024 will be about for the center. I have ideas, but I, we haven't locked that down yet. So I will happily come back and talk about that when we lock that down. That sounds like a good plan. So in terms of things that you know are going to be changes you're doing for sure in the next you know 12 months or so, what can we expect maybe in the next, you know, if we're visiting the center in the next five months even, what do you have on deck? Yep. So next year is an anniversary year for one of Jackson's most famous cases. It's his descent in Korematsu. And so our interns this summer started the development of an exhibit that will go in in the spring of next year uh, to highlight. Uh, there's actually three cases really in in a line. Uh, and Jackson is in the majority on two of them and the descent in the Korematsu case. And just, it sort of showcases the evolution of his thinking on these challenges and government power. Um, the other two cases are Inrei Endo and Hirabayashi. And so it's sort of a progressive step of curfews all the way finally to internment. And so it's you can sort of see where Jackson stops being comfortable with government power and and the citizen the citizenry's rights um, become more more prevalent. Um, we are also, and I'm really excited about this, we are one of the 12 host sites in all of New York 
for a traveling Smithsonian exhibit that will be with us next fall in September um, called Voices and Votes. Uh, and as I said, we're one of only 12 museums in the state of New York that will be the host for that and the only one in this area. And so we will also be working with the Fenton History Center and with the local library system and a number of other organizations to add the Jamestown touch to that exhibit as well as to create programs. Going back to this, the case uh, Kuramatsu, mm-hmm. I, I've not heard of that. I'm not familiar with it. I'm going to guess our listeners may not. What What is that case? Sure, absolutely. So the Korematsu case uh, came to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1944, obviously, since next year is the, the anniversary year. And it so Fred Korematsu was a Japanese-American citizen who, when Executive Order 9066, and that's the military order that... President Roosevelt signed to remove all of the Japanese and Japanese Americans from the West Coast. Fred, you know, defied that order and would not go. He was eventually picked up and interned. Uh, but the uh, a group of uh, activists and ACLU lawyers took his case to the Supreme Court, and the decision at the court in 1944 came down six to three. So six of the Justices supported the president's power to to do this. Jackson wrote the lead dissent. And so in his mind, you know, there's there's a couple of things that stand out for me with that is one of the things he wrote, and I'm not going to get this language exactly right, was that basically the concept of guilt is personal and cannot be transferred or inherited. And so that was one of the military's rationales for for this order was the security risk, um, having all of the Japanese American on the West Coast, so close to Japan, and would that allow sabotage or other acts of war to to encroach on the U.S. And Jack, to Jackson's point, if Fred Korematsu himself had not been caught doing anything wrong, then you could not tar him with this inherent guilt of a race. Um, it also, and I read this in some note somewhere a long time ago, that that Jackson didn't really know any Japanese or Japanese Americans when he was writing this opinion. But what was in his mind was the way that Native Americans were treated in this area. And so that was how he was forming his concept of American and citizenship and and the rights that go with that. Um, and so that that formed part of the basis of his, you know, for a Japanese American, their difference is obvious on their face. Whereas for German Americans or Italian Americans at the time, that it wasn't as noticeable. And so it was very easy to to segregate Japanese Americans based on characteristics that over which they had no control. There's a, a you know, the, the Korematsu decision really still survives till today. Um, there was during the Trump v. Hawaii case in 2018, Chief Justice Roberts has a line in there that says something along the lines of Korematsu was wrongly decided when it was decided. Um, but that's in a language called dicta that lawyers, uh, you know, basically it means it doesn't have any precedential value. So it's a nice comment that the chief justice made, but going forward, no one can really rely on that language as a reason to not do something or to do something in the future. Um, and for me, a lot of the Trump v. Hawaii language very much mirrors the security and safety concerns that the military used in the Executive Order 9066 um, arguments. And so it's you know it's it's language that's still out there. It's a ruling that's still out there. Hmm. That's interesting because. Uh, wasn't aware. I was aware of you know the Japanese internment during World War II, but I hadn't 
heard about a, a Supreme Court case that had made any determination on it. Because it's one of those things, unfortunately, they probably don't have time to get into even in AP American <laughs> history classes for high school students. So yep. So that's interesting. So so you have that. And then the Smithsonian exhibit as well. Uh, is this something that started out at the Smithsonian Center uh, in Washington, and then they just made a traveling exhibit of it? Or is this around any kind of particular anniversary? You know, that's a good question. And I don't know the answer to the former question. I don't know if it's something that the Smithsonian uh, had in their own building before, because they do develop traveling exhibits just as a, as a regular course. Um, it is something through the Museum Association of New York that the opportunity was brought to the museums in New York. And we went through an application process to to be part of that. And it's, you know, part of it is tying it to the nexus of our work. Um, and I had reached out to, you know, since Jamestown is the home or was the home of the American Voting Machine Company, I checked with Fenton to see if we had any of those old machines, and they do. You know, figuring out how to get it from Fenton to the Jackson Center will be another interesting challenge, but um, these are, you know, there are pieces of Jamestown history that are very much tied to this exhibit between uh, voting machines and some of the early activists and suffragists that were here in town, um, plus obviously Jackson's federal career. There's a nice nexus here that I think will create a really interesting exhibit. Mm-hmm. Will that be this September or September 2024? September of 2024. Okay. Yes. I, I got excited, so I guess I got to <laughs> wait a year. So You do, although we are planning a really awesome Constitution Day event for this year. And to go back a little bit to the concept of uh, citizenship, we have asked Justice Mark Montour, who is the first Native American to serve in the appellate division in New York State, to be our keynote speaker. And this is open to the public. So if the public would like to come and listen to uh, Justice Montour talk about, we've asked him to talk about the concept of citizenship um, and and how the Constitution views that. And uh, I think it'll be a really great conversation. So mm-hmm. that's on September 21st, and it starts at 10 a.m. Great. So when it comes to funding, I mean, obviously you're not getting income from people paying admission <laughs> tickets as we discussed, and that can have its ups and downs. But if, say, funding and resources, uh, you know, you had unlimited stores of both. And I'm like, when I say resources, I mean everything from like people to run mm-hmm. things to whatever, you know, have you. What would you do at the Robert H. Jackson Center if you had? unlimited it's up either i mean the list is almost inexhaustible <laughs> julia but there are two main things that come to mind uh one is really going back to using the building to better tell jackson's story and you know, really creating some amazing exhibits in a in a semi-permanent way because exhibits always need to be refreshed but you know something that really tells jackson's story from the start through the end of his career in a way that makes sense and builds on each other. We also have some wonderful ties to Jamestown history in the building, so making sure those stories don't get lost as well. So the story of the Kent family, the Masons, the visit of President Ulysses S. Grant, which is an odd touch to history that the building has as well. You know, So that's one. Uh, I think the, the second thing that really came to mind when you asked that question has to do with a fellows program. And so this is something I would love to institute to your point, to have additional people out there writing and researching and talking on Jackson, because I think the most common conversation I have with people when they're at the Jackson Center or where they're learning about Jackson stems back to how similar the challenges that we're having today seem to be to what he was writing about, speaking on, talking about back in the 40s and 50s, 30s, you know, basically his, his entire career. 
And I want to make sure that more people are introduced to that and more people are learning about that because I really do think Jackson has some great guiding lines and some great aspirations for us as a citizenship, as as people in general, and as a country, and honestly, as a global part, as a part of the global uh, mechanism as well. And so people who you know, scholars, and it doesn't all have to be scholars, it could be just interested people or historians or something like to find those ties to what's happening today, and find those trace those threads back to Jackson and be writing on them and talking about them. I would I would love to have a fellows type program. Um, But basically, with unlimited resources, I would just like to make everything that we do better you know, add, add more people to it, add more technology to it, add more Jackson to it, add more information everywhere I can. I think that uh, I think that a lot of people would probably do the same. So, and I was thinking about about Jackson and, and this case law. I mean, we're talking about something that happened in, in, with the um, the, uh, the the one case. Is thinking about it was in the 1940s, but how much of the law is still very living and breathing today, and how it how it has relevance you know, some decades and decades later. And that I mean, that's true with a lot a lot of case law. I mean, we, I think. I'm trying to think of, uh, there was, and this wasn't in the U.S. Supreme Court, and it wasn't Robert H. Jackson, but how there was in indictments recently that came out about our former president, that they were going back to Reconstruction Era mm-hmm. law, and how that was used, you know, in bringing forth and saying, this is what you're being charged with in violation of that law. And I'm thinking, gosh, that's from the 1860s and 70s, and this is 2023, and... It's one of those, yeah, you it really almost would need a fellow to really be able to get into a lot of that because even though Robert H. Jackson's life is much shorter than our country's history, uh, there's still, in terms of everything he decided or had a say in, there, there's a lot you could dig into there. Absolutely. It's, you know, even in this most recent Supreme Court term, there was a case called 303 Creative, which was a woman in Colorado who was interested in starting a web design business, but she hadn't done that yet because she was concerned to do so because she did not want to create websites for same-sex weddings. And so this case came to the Supreme Court, and a lot of this discussion about it went back to Jackson's decision in Barnett and uh, how you know issues of conscience and how those interact with the Constitution and which takes precedence and priority. We had a really great community discussion about uh, issues of conscience and Barnett and and 303 Creative in June at the center. And we do plan to do more of these community conversations. We had another one just last week with Professor Atiba Ellis on um, who gets to vote and who gets to decide. So a discussion on voting rights uh, in the United States. And we'll, we'll continue to do that. But there's so much of what we talk about today, whether it's presidential power, whether it's First Amendment, whether it's you know, this, this sort of concept of what are your rights as a, as a citizen that often have some root back into something that Jackson did, which I find both uh, gratifying and at times challenging because we, I think, had hoped that there would always be more progress. And so if we feel like we're talking about the same things over and over again, you know, is where where are we seeing the progress? I'm not saying that there isn't some, but that, you know, progress in, in some instances is very incremental. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you have a lot of these 
videos uh, available of speakers, uh, I think a YouTube page. Where can people visit to either view videos or find more information about the center? Yep. So obviously our website, roberthjackson.org is a good place. We, our YouTube channel, if you just go to YouTube and search for Robert H. Jackson, you'll find our channel pretty easily. We also have a podcast called Liberty Under Law. So you can find that podcast anywhere you get your podcast. And those typically are the, and we started that during the pandemic as well. So those are typically programs that we have done that we have turned into podcasts. So if you weren't able to tune in either live or watch it on YouTube, that's another way for you to consume it. Mm-hmm. Anything else you'd like to add, Kristen? Not at the moment, Julia. Thanks for asking me to chat though. Well, thank you so much for coming in. And for people, if you're looking for more information, again, the website, robertshjackson.org. Thanks again, Kristen. Thanks, Julia.